So I um, think of a retreat often uh, analogous to approaching a mirror. And uh, when we come in uh, to uh, the first day or so of the retreat, we're very distant from the mirror. We kind of know that the reflection is there, but we're not paying a lot of attention to it. We're just trying to get properly oriented in the room and make the thing work. But on day two, the mirror's reflection starts <clears throat> revealing the warts and pot marks and distortions of body that we live with. In fact, we, the mirror, uh, as we approach it, is one of those um, carnival mirrors that ripple. We have a big this and a small that and a... And from our perception, that's the way we look. And we react according uh, to those reflections, often uh, with with the same attitudes that we have approached our life, uh, which for the most part is with a lot of sense of self-insufficiency. Not always, but probably um, by and large that's the majority view in the mirror. And unless we understand how we distort things and for what reason we distort things, then we don't really get a sense of how to see this thing in the correct orientation and its correct alignment. So tonight I'd like to talk about that distorting process, distorting reality. I have noticed in this culture in particular, we put a great deal of emphasis on, especially in childhood, on imagination. In fact, um, we not only appreciate but encourage kids to be imaginative, to expand their horizons, their potentials, their possibilities. And that encouragement uh, towards imagination um, of course, has some value, I, I think. It, it uh, doesn't allow someone to get frozen in their aspirations. Uh, but uh, we don't stop imagining when we're passed through childhood into adulthood. And the ripple effects of the imaginative response carries forth uh, to our detriment, I think, There's a big difference between creativity and imagination. And I don't think we, for the most part, we really understand that difference. Imagination is really a continuation of the same theme, expanded or contracted, depending upon how our thoughts manage it. And creativity is seeing something new, not from an extension of ourselves, but something completely new that can't be thought about. And when I talk about creativity, I also want to 
bring in insight because insight and creativity come from the same place. They're not two separate domains. And so we begin to see that imagination, you know, I, I take myself and I can project myself into different surroundings, into different jobs, into different ways of being, but it's always from who I am now, maybe older or maybe more grandiose, but not very much changes in terms of my inward understanding of myself. Insight, however, is the direct perception of ourselves free of imagination. So we can begin to get a sense that we can't imagine ourselves out of this predicament we find ourselves in. We can't use what in childhood may have been a very nice tool, an enjoyable one, and apply it to our adult or existential situation and pain. And yet, may I say that we have encouraged that faculty in ourselves to such a degree that that's exactly what we try to do. We try to work our thoughts so that we can imagine a reality different than the one that seems to be imposing upon us. And this creates all sorts of confusion within us. Because imagination must inevitably, imagination is just a fantasy, right? It's makeup, make-believe. So he makes him a bargain. He says, um, I want you to sell me your soul. And Faust says, okay, you can have it, but what I want you to do is bring me one experience that I can say is so compelling that this is, this is it. And I never have to search for another experience. And the devil couldn't do it, which saved his soul. Now, it doesn't take a lot of movement towards that mirror before you see that everything in that mirror is in movement. It doesn't require a great deal of time on the cushion or awareness within before you see the whole thing very shaky. So if experience is built upon the fabric of that shakiness, where are we going to rest in relationship to it? Which is what we are often pursuing, but not really experiencing. There's just nowhere to rest. It's all, as we're saying back in our teacher's area, as we're getting old and feeling our bodies fall apart, the shingles of the roof are falling off this house. The plaster is split. <laughs> and we don't have a carpenter around to fix it up.
Now, let's say that the average age in this room, just, just for the sake of this, is 40, 40 years old. And let us say there's 100 people here. Now, that's 4,000 years of adult history, or history, of human history in this room. So would you please find up, stand up or raise your hand if you have found something so compelling that you can rest your life upon it, and that's it. So, how many years do we more do we have to pursue this seeking? How many more years do we keep this distortion alive in us? The payoff we get in doing so is hope. We feel we just haven't found it yet. We haven't tried hard enough. It's up there. I mean, it's got to. I mean, the American dream is built upon it. We just haven't found it yet. We don't have enough money. We haven't got the right partner. If it just weren't for this bum leg, the boss, the job. 4,000 years of human history in the room. Please stand up. Now the third distortion is my favorite. Because it's a given when you have the first two. And the third distortion is taking what is inherently lacking independent existence as independently existing. Remember, this is what we're seeing when we're approaching this mirror. The assumption of me. The assumption of me lives in your thought, in our thought. It, it, you cannot find it outside of the thought about it. Therefore, any threat to not thinking is a threat to that assumption and a very strong threat to the sense of me, which is why, mostly, we will give ourselves over to thinking rather than come and base ourselves in reality. And as long as we stay in the reflective quality of life, that is reflecting upon it through our ideas, then we can stay very safely at home in the permanency of our thought because concepts don't change. And so then we will meet reality, and however we conceive it, with our concepts as a buffer between ourselves and the unsafety of its impermanence. Now, here's an interesting neurological fact. That the same pathway of perception is the pathway of memory. That neurologically, they are the same neurons that deliver memory and perception. And we don't know which one we're seeing. 
when we look out, are we seeing perception? Or are we seeing the memory of what we have perceived before? Just taking a different shape or color or form. Therein lies the problem and how subtle the problem is. Because we move with the memory. We keep that well entrenched. And when we do, we maintain the assumption of me. Because we don't see the difference. We don't know the difference. But it doesn't take a lot of wisdom, really. It's not like you have to be Moses or somebody to know that there's nothing impervious, that all things are interchangeable here. I was reading a story about the weather and that the weather, accuracy of the weather will never be more accurate than it is now. They'll never be able to predict weather um, more accurately than they do now because to do so, they have to take in the most subtle changes of life, like the flaps of butterfly wings, because all of that subtlety affects weather, and they don't know how to extrapolate that data because it's everything does, your movement. That's just one indication of an interrelated, the interrelatedness of life that we can feel when we allow ourselves to come down from the reflection upon it into the open-hearted awareness of it. It's no longer a theory. It's no longer a scientific Inquiry. It's an actual experience. And one of the ways that you can feel that is through the heart's opening and how it's affected by everything. That's the way this practice goes. Towards being great, more gr- greatly affected, with an A, affected. Which it has to do if we are to uncover that interrelationship, that is the interrelationship of things. You can't be blasé about life. You can't be, oh, so what? You can when you're a mentally derived sense of me, but you can't from the heart-based, from the experiential So the assumption of me feeds on the other two distortions. We must freeze the process of life to make it worth having. Otherwise, it's not worth having. It's not worth grasping. And we set fleeting standards of happiness to prove the pursuit is justifiable. And blame ourselves 
when they change, that we weren't sufficient up to the task or that other things got in the way. What we're really on here when we sit and meditate is a fact-finding mission. And seeing how we distort those facts again and again and again to fit what we want, what we imagine, what we fantasize life could be if it would just get it straight. And again and again and again, we crash into the reality when that distortion can't sustain itself. That's the reason that pain, pain, the crashing of those two together, is the great motivator of Dharma activity, of Dharma inquiry, of Dharma looking. My hope is that we've all suffered sufficiently not to have to go much deeper into that pain to make it worthwhile to look at the distortion. We have a week here, an opportunity to really face the mirror. Okay, I can deal with this now. And you know, after the week, if it didn't serve you, resume your old patterns. But give it a full week. Give it a devoted week. Come into the practice fully and see what reality really looks like. Can we sit for a minute or two? So just as you're sitting here, don't resist anything. Try to release any resistance that might be occurring. The resistance is the fabrication. That's where the mind takes hold. That's the departure point. trust it on its own terms. Come what may. And then there's an intimation of something.
far greater than the world we play upon. A, a walking period now. <clears throat> and we do this because we learn very early on that facts, facts are not friendly. Isn't that interesting? It's true. We try to navigate around the facts by projecting an imaginative response to them or an imaginary reality where the facts don't exist. And I think that the Dharma is the encouragement to understand that facts are friendly. In fact, the Buddha left home because how he was living wasn't in alignment with the greater reality he was seeing. He was harbored, safe harbored within his walls of princehood and very protected, it is said, either in myth or history, it doesn't matter, because the metaphor works well for us these days, especially in our middle of our affluence, that somehow he ventured out into the ghettos of life and saw life in its raw form and said, I can't go back to that because that's imaginative compared to this. i got to come out here and deal with this because this waits for me no matter how much I pretend in there that it doesn't. And we begin to get a sense that our growth depends upon our lining ourselves with the fact and not pretending them to be other to see them. I don't care how I want to be. Let me look at the mirror is another way of saying. I don't care what I wish for. Let's put the wishing aside and let's see what's really there. And work with it and deal with it. Feedback or whatever form the facts may arise. Certainly our inward facts are what we are dealing with for the most part this week. And the reason I think that most of us mistrust the facts is that we don't believe reality, meaning the facts, are safe. So we hedge our bets. I don't know about this knee pain. So I'll keep wishing it away like a little child. It's really very 
endearing when you see it as a hope for ourselves, but a falsely applied hope. I don't want it, says the little child. (laughs) We don't want it. We don't want pain. We don't want it. I don't want it. But it's there. It's not a question of wanting it or not. If it worked to wish it away, by God, I'd be right out there in the middle of this (laughs) wishing strategy, but it doesn't work because reality is there. Now, the payoff of wishing is that we get a more pleasant and lasting world. And that's what we wish for. Trumpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan master, said, what do we get from reality? You might think that something extraordinary will happen. Something extraordinary does happen. You simply find yourself in the realm of utter reality, complete and thorough reality. To feel that the facts serve our life, that serve our growth, serve our greatest intention, and to commit ourselves. No, I will change that. To devote ourselves to aligning, ourse- to aligning with those facts, with that mirror image, no matter what. And the reason I changed the word commit to devoted is that you can be, your body can be here in commitment. I'm committed to a relationship. But your mind may be far away. But you're being noble. I'm committed to this relation. I'm committed to being here. But that doesn't say anything to me. You have to be devoted. You have to show up. We all have to arrive together. And the word commitment for me doesn't hold that sense of complete arrival. That's what's required. And we can't hedge the bet of that. We can't pull back prematurely and keep one card out. I'll play 52, but I want my one card in case things go wrong. Because I always have my imagination to go back to. It's a 52 card draw or nothing. So when we perceive that reality can afford us an opportunity when we align ourselves with the facts of our life, then we need the principles of how to look at reality. There are certain principles that work and certain ones that don't. So the first thing that we have to do is experience reality firsthand. We can't be told about it. Because if you're told about it, then that is a reflection of the fact. It's not the real thing. It's somebody saying, uh, talking about your pain rather than you experiencing your pain. In fact, that second-hand observation is what thinking is all about. Thinking 
is a reflection on reality. It's a ponderance. It's a stepping back and looking, discerning about it. Rather than joining it. Rather than abiding in it. And so when we're lost in thinking about ourselves, we're one step removed from the fact. And so we're not joining it firsthand. To join the fact firsthand is what the Dharma requires from us. And you can see that there is such a conditioning to think about things. You begin to, we begin to understand where we have spent most of our time and most of our energy. It's so interesting that even when we come here to spend 45 minutes doing nothing else but facing the fact straight on, how much of that 45 minutes do we actually attend to the fact? For the most part, not very much. Now, if that happens during the hour that we commit or devote ourselves to doing that, what do you think happens in the hours that we don't? We spend very little time facing ourselves directly. The second I have already spoken a little bit about, and that is that we can't hold ourselves back. The second principle of looking. First one is we have to, have to face it firsthand. The second is that we can't hold ourselves back in reserve. And you know that takes extraordinary faith. I, I don't... I think the reason that the path for some people seems so long and laborious is the lack of faith that we bring to reality and to the principles of safety therein. We don't trust it because it's let us down in the past. If I trusted it, why did it give me the mother I had? So we, in any way, why did it give me the body I had or the pain I'm having or whatever? Our arguments are continuous. The third principle of looking is that we have to take reality on its own terms, on its own terms, not on the terms that we want to apply to it. And that is very subtle. On its own terms. It's hot in here. It's muggy. That's the terms. We can do things later, like put in air conditioners and whatever. But now, as it's occurring, this is the terms we have to live with on its own terms. The fourth is something, the fourth principle, and we're just going through these, just is that the Dharma requires us to stretch. It's like a very good symphony, a Beethoven symphony, or a work of art. Picasso, or a prized piece of literature. 
Shakespeare. To listen or to orient ourselves to it, you have to stretch. You can't just bring in one's attitude and situation and expect to understand it. You have to, you have to rise up to it. Which means we have to be willing to release ourselves in order to rise up. Release ourselves from that which seems to hold us so determined and so fixed within ourselves. Because the Dharma does require that. These words elevate. So once we have the principles on how to look, and once we understand the problem of our fantasy and imagination distorting the looking, what is it that we discover about how we have distorted reality? What is, it, what are the, what is happening? What is, what is occurring? <clears throat> the first thing of these distortions is that we take what is inherently impermanent to be permanent. And you know, the Buddha said it's deliberate. I'd like to let us off and say that it's not our fault. But I'm afraid it is. He says you're deliberately doing this. Now, it may not be conscious anymore, but it's deliberate. We want to arrest the movement of life above all else. Because we realize that it's on a collision course with something. If something's moving, that scares us. It means age, for one thing, and it means death for another. And when it moves, and it moves irreversibly towards a conclusion we'd rather not occur, that we would rather not have it occur, then our job, the job of the distorting mind, the job of imagination, is to keep things from moving, fixed, fixed held in place so that nothing moves. It's interesting, if if you've ever been to some of the cathedrals in Europe, there are these uh, 14th and 15th century cathedrals. You have mammoth walls, huge, thick, to the solidity of life, because everything around them at those times, the dark ages, etc., were, uh, showed the suffering of life. And so they, in their uh, distortion, wanted something to be thick and permanent and lasting. But we do the same thing. We try to arrest the movement. 
And by arresting the movement, we can keep things on a slow track. We can't deny that we're getting older, but we don't have to dwell on it. We can't deny that things are going to die intellectually, but let's get them off into the end rooms on the corridor of the hospital. Don't put it out in front of my eyes. Then, once I've cleared the slate so that I no longer have to dwell on that, then I can bring forth my purpose in life and what is meaningful to me. But I can't do that as long as life is in movement because everything is dropping off the cliff. And so what's purposeful and what's meaningful has to be from my distorted view of permanence. Now I can find something importantly important to me. Relationship. My children. You see? But when you look through the undistorted eye and you hold the equation that things are going to die alongside those purposeful and meaningful intentions in our life, not very much holds up. Because all coming together ends in departure. And so I'd rather keep this view obscured. You know, it's interesting, after 9-11... People went on shopping sprees. They went out and purchased and bought and accumulated. So there's a real spike in buying activity to get themselves back in place, to get themselves to believe that there was something worth, that was, to believe that there was something purposeful and meaningful in those activities and in life. Now, I say this and knowing <clears throat> that many of you have a purpose and a meaning, and I don't, I'm not trying to pull the rug out from under that or to take that away, but is there something that the heart, that whatever meaning we give life, is covering over a deeper yearning of life that may arise when it looks at life from the facts of my death? from the facts of aging. Does that purpose and meaning change when we look at the the truth of that? And I think it does. I think the whole thing changes. And I think that's what this week is dedicated to. Not the accumulation of product not the productivity standards and tasks and accomplishments, because those are going to die with you or soon after you die. But maybe the quality of life itself. Quality, not quantity. Maybe when life is lived from the inside, 
maybe the sense of meaning and purpose has no meaning because it's all meaningful. It's all purposeful. Maybe there's something rich when we don't distort. And something very inevitably sorrowful, lamentation, woe, when we do. I was watching um, the news uh, not too long ago, and I was just witnessing the famine in Sudan. We just, uh, just the turning away. We've seen too many of those. Ethiopia and Biafra and, I mean, Pakistan. I mean, just Bangladesh. You just, and here was another one. And it was interesting uh, because uh, the news program broke and then there was a commercial about uh, a game show. I don't even know what the game show was like. I have a millionaire, being a millionaire or something. And there was this man who was um, uh, answering a question for half a million dollars. And I went, wow. Now that's, they really thought that out, didn't they? Biafra and a million dollar game show. Putting that aside, I mean, it was so jolting to see reality stark an imaginative fantasy, side by side. And the payoff we get, because I always like to look, look at the payoff. If we don't understand the payoff, what we're getting from it, we won't understand. We have to, value, we have to look and see if that payoff is worth it's the distortion. So the payoff we get in imagining life to be permanent is immortality. That's the payoff. See, that's an imaginative payoff. And therefore, when, it's, when you find that you aren't, well, it hurts. But never mind. You've probably got 40, 50, 60, 70 or so years before you crash. But never mind. <laughs> See, I, I worked in hospice care. I know what it feels like to see people crash. Hundreds and hundreds of people. There's no room for pretending in the Dharma. There's no room for deception. That's why there's such a premium on honesty and integrity and ethical conduct. There's just no room for it. There's no room for play. I don't mean play in terms of humor, and I don't mean play in terms of relaxation. I mean play in terms of distortion, of pretending. There's plenty of room for the other, for humor. It's like someone casts a line out and we bit the hook and then the reel starts reeling us in. And for a long time we have a lot of what seems like play. But the reel starts reeling us in (laughs) 
and the line gets shorter and shorter. And as you begin to note the tug of the line, which is what you're doing here, you're noting the, noticing the tug of the line, the wiggle room becomes much less. Especially when you're aging in relationship, which we all are, whether we're 14 or 40, then we begin to sober up and wonder what this life is really about. What's its real intention? The second distortion is that we take what is inherently incapable of satisfying as satisfying. Now, now, that's a, that's, now we're in a real fix. You know, I was reading uh, the Olympics, uh, the Olympic athletes, and someone asked the Olympic athletes that if they could take a pill that would assure that they would win the event of whatever they were running or doing, but that two weeks after that they would then die, 50% of the athletes said they would take the pill. <laughs> that is placing all of your marbles in the wrong canister. In uh, Faust, in his uh, dialogue with Mephistopheles, the devil, Mephistopheles is trying to buy Faust's soul. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.